once you are able to control fire to the point where you can use it both to cook and to keep yourself warm, that means that you are shifting from a chimpanzee-like animal to a human-like animal. Welcome to Talking Apes. July 14th is World Chimpanzee Day. And to celebrate, we're talking with Dr. Richard Rangham, Harvard University primatologist and chimpanzee expert. So who are we? That's the question that has tortured humankind since, well, since apes like us became human, I guess. There's a biological us and there's a cultural us. And the ongoing evolution of each is inextricably linked. That evolution and the connection to our living great ape cousins, the gorillas, orangutans, and particularly the bonobos and chimpanzees, has consumed Richard's curiosity and intellectual perambulations for more than a half century. Richard's research and writings have focused on ape behavior, human evolution, aggression, and get this, cooking. Yes, cooking. We'll figure that one out. We'll spend some time around the evolutionary fireplace with Richard, talk about his book, Catching Fire, and explore cooking, and how the fire that made it possible may have also made us possible. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Richard Rangham, welcome to Talking Apes. I am super excited to have you on, and especially since we're celebrating World Chimpanzee Day, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I think it's wonderful that you uh, you get to talk to ape people and, and spread the word about apes. It's, uh, it's a pr- privilege to be here. Well, I can't think of uh, a, a more appropriate ape person to have on today than you. I, you've spent uh, half a century God, that's an amazing period of time. Half a century thinking about us and our ape, you know, cousins and how who we are and, and what they are. And that's that's where I would like to start the conversation today is for those, especially for those who are are listening to this and may not be familiar with all of your work or or maybe even any of your work, could you give us, you know, that uh, that yeah, you know, hour and a half uh, recap of your life. <laughs> That's how long it would probably take, but maybe maybe we can cut it to five or ten minutes. But any, anyway, how did how did this all get started? It launched many many years ago, so maybe you could you could take us back to the beginning and your connection to uh, especially chimpanzees. Well, I am a um, an old fashioned naturalist at heart. I just love to be in nature. Um, watching animals, it could be birds, could be mammals, could be insects. Um, and uh, when I grew up, I seized every opportunity I could to to find ways to just indulge my aesthetic pleasure, which increasingly became an intellectual pleasure, in um, enjoying the natural world. And by the time I left university, having studied zoology at Oxford University, I wanted to do a PhD studying animal behavior. And um, I was incredibly lucky because uh, my tutor at Oxford was a man called Harold Pusey, who had a daughter called Anne Pusey, who was at that point just starting uh, a career working in Gombe uh, in Western Tanzania for the already pretty famous, um, but still very young, Jane Goodall. So Jane Goodall is the the famed documenter of chimpanzees who has been working for 60 years. I'm a a Johnny-come-lately, 50 years. Um, And... um, 
But even then, it was uh, clear it was going to be a privilege to work uh, with Jane Goodall uh, in Gombe National Park with wild chimpanzees. And working with her meant uh, going out and uh, every day having the opportunity to uh, watch chimpanzees moving around in the wild and behaving. And that is basically what I have done for the rest of my life. So uh, I literally did a PhD. I um, studied a few other animals. I studied um, some monkeys, vervet monkeys in Kenya. I studied gelada uh, baboon-like animals in Ethiopia. Uh, I spent uh, a year living in the Congo with people living in a non-state to society, essentially. Uh, these were uh, F.A., uh, who nowadays we don't like to use the word pygmies because it sounds so it sounds somewhat demeaning. But these were these very small scattered people that was just totally fascinating living in a, a forest, you know, not totally different from forests I had known. But I rapidly came back to chimps and uh, I worked in a university and uh, every year until this lockdown year, I would find myself uh, in Africa, uh, mostly in Uganda, where I founded a, a, a new um, a long-term research study of chimpanzees in 1987. And I, I continue to, to go there as often as possible and catch up with, with those chimps. So it was a, a journey that I, I feel incredibly lucky to have been part of, because I think all of us are interested in the human condition. And ultimately, I think there are very few ways to get as um, fascinating insights about the really deep questions of who we humans are. Uh, very few ways to get it as much as you get from watching chimpanzees. And it's, it's those those deep questions that I, I kind of want to dig into because as we were chatting about before we, we started recording, it's you often hear this phrase, um, you were 98% like chimpanzees or 98% chimp. And, you know, there's t-shirts and the media loves to say that. And in fact, Jane often says that. But, and I guess I just, uh, for a very long time, I've just sort of thought about it as, yeah, we're 98% chimpanzee. But in in looking at the history of your work and where you have been pushing the conversation, and, and I do say pushing because I think um, you have often said some things that others have went, wait a second, I'm not sure we should be having that conversation. That's not quite on track with evolutionary thinking at, at the moment, is that there's much more to that 2% that separates us uh, from chimpanzees um, as human beings or um, or the creature that we have become. And that especially hit me when I was reading Catching Fire, your, your book about cooking, which came out roughly a decade ago, I think 2009. And that, that book really changed I, I was just rereading it over the last few days it really changed the way I think about who we have become because many of the things that you you go on to to do demonic male uh, and looking at aggression and now the goodness paradox your nose book and looking at its aggression and war and maybe we can touch on some of those but it seems to all come back to this this moment um, of energy and energy and cooking. And you could explain it far better than I. Maybe we could start there and talk about why that was maybe such a, a sentinel moment in separating and creating that 2% difference between us. Otherwise, we, you know, we might all still just be another chimpanzee version. You know, you've raised two, two big questions in, in uh, the last minute. And I, uh, I'd love to just begin by thinking about the 2%, um, because uh, that number means in incredibly little on its own. 
I mean, what it means is, um, uh, or what it means depends on how much the 2% matters. And we have no way of judging that uh, arbitrarily. I mean, we are 50% related to a banana. <laughs> okay, so, you know, we're not sort of, you know, yellow and, and banana-shaped. Um, the, the, these percentages uh, only mean something once you understand the way genetics work and so on. But the really important thing about the genetic discoveries, uh, which began in the 1980s and then got really firmed up over the next uh, 15, 20 years, the really important thing was not how much of our genes differ between us and any particular species like chimpanzees. It was to show what the order of evolutionary relationship was with different species. And the very, very dramatic finding that was completely incredible to a lot of people initially which it first came out in 1984, was that chimpanzees are more closely related to humans than they are to gorillas. Now, the astonishing thing about this is that chimpanzees and gorillas look extremely similar to each other. In fact, they are so similar that people have sometimes been unable to decide whether a particular animal is a chimpanzee or a gorilla. You know, there was this famous thing called the Kulakamba, a population of uh, Western apes in, in Gabon uh, in the 19th century, and some people said it was a gorilla and some people said it was a chimpanzee. And that's how similar they are. If you are a big chimpanzee or a small gorilla, you look pretty similar to each other. Well, obviously, what you would expect is that if you look at the DNA, you would find that the chimpanzee and the gorilla have much closer DNA to each other than they do to their relatives like humans. And yet, the initial discovery in 1984 was that chimpanzees are actually more closely related to humans than they are to gorillas. What did that mean? Most people interpreted it as the geneticists have got it wrong. It can't be right. And for you know the first, I can't remember, 10 years or so, there was some pretty intense debate where some people just asserted, you know, that's got to be wrong. Obvious that chimps and gorillas so similar, they must be very each other's closest relatives. But the data just came coming in better and better, you know, not just mitochondrial DNA, but uh, lots of different genes on the nuclear genome, and then the entire nuclear genome. And finally, it was just completely clear. Absolutely. Chimps and humans are more closely related to each other than either of them is to gorillas. So what that meant was, that uh, you could now think about the common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans and think, what was that like? And because that common ancestor's closest relationship to any other animal was to a gorilla, and because it was the ancestor of chimpanzees that looked so similar to gorillas, then the obvious answer is that that common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees was in the chimpanzee gorilla mold. If it was a little bit smaller, it would be more like a chimpanzee. If it was a bit bigger, it would be more like a gorilla. In other words, that thing that gave rise to humans all those years ago, which we can now say is a, around six or seven million years ago, if it was a bit smaller, it was more like a chimp. If it was a bit bigger, it was more like a gorilla. So that's what was so exciting. In that, that's uh, less than uh, 50 years ago, just over 40 years ago, we discovered that we were descended from a species that was very, very similar to the chimpanzee gorilla. Now, the question was, how big was it? Well, 
we now have a pretty good fossil record of the descendants of that species. It doesn't go all the way back to the six or seven million years ago, but you've got some fragmentary stuff that goes you know, pretty close to that, and you've got really good stuff by the time you get to, uh, to three million, three and a half million years ago. And they're all pretty small. They're all much, they're actually smaller than chimps. So they're, they're more like chimps than gorillas, the ancestors you can infer. And um, maybe they were a little bit different from chimps because maybe they were smaller than chimps. So they weren't identical to chimps necessarily, but it means that if we look at chimps now, they were remarkably close in what they look like and their genes to the ancestor of us all six or seven million years ago. And of course, you know, the reason that we have to go through all of this uh, fascinating genetic inference is because we don't have direct fossils. These were undoubtedly species that lived in forest and forests tend to have soils that will destroy fossils. Uh, they're too acid for, for the bones to survive in general. So uh, the genetic evidence has been really crucial. And it wouldn't have mattered whether it was 2% or 5% or 1% or what. The important thing was that we are more closely related to chimps than chimps or, gor or us are to gorillas. So that was what was so exciting. And, and that all of a sudden put the spotlight on chimpanzee behavior in a way that previously uh, was just a very diffuse kind of understanding of, well, you know, we are descended from great apes. If we are, if you like, a great ape ourselves. Uh, so wouldn't it be interesting to see what we do compared to the great apes? But now we can say, hey, you know, these chimps, very, very similar to our ancestors. Well, then, you know, we, we go to what um, uh, Jane Goodall had uh, already discovered, that the chimps were, uh, in particularly in the male behavior, astonishingly similar to some of the unusual behaviors of humans. They were hunting other animals and meat, eating them and sharing the meat. They were using tools. They were going on raids to attack members of neighboring groups. I mean, these are all things that we thought of as uniquely human, and now they turn out to be in the species that we think was a pretty darn good model for our ancestors. So it all contributes to giving a sense that it's much more than a, a vague general resemblance to an ape. You know, we're not just looking at gorillas, bonobos, chimpanzees, and orangutans, and saying, well, they're all apes, so what do, you know, can we average among them and, and somehow produce some kind of concept of, of where humans came from? No, we zero in on chimps. Now, you said, what about the diet? What about food? When yeah, I, where's that separator then? If if we're going, if we're if we're sitting there in Gambia and we're looking at a chimp, as you and I have both done, what separates? I mean, because they're, I mean, you look at them and there's a lot to look at that is similar and and behaviorally, there as you just said, there, you know, they hunt and they do these things. So, what is it that we should be looking at that somehow? took us from that small little creature connected, you know, three million years ago or two and a half million years ago, where, what should we be looking at? What should we be thinking about? Well, you already said uh, what I think of the, as a very, very big contributor to the answer. Maybe, you know, in, in my mind, I say, I really think it was the answer and that is, is cooking. And, and let me just, just uh, amuse you by saying, how stupid I was to be so slow to, to think about this. Because when I went to, to Gombe um, in Anne Pusey's uh, wake, as it were, um, I, and um, I spent a year being a research assistant to Jane, and uh, that was wonderful because uh, I studied the relationships among some pairs of siblings, and it gave me an opportunity to think about what I would like to study for myself. And 
uh, during a year, what you see, as I'm sure you've seen in, in Gombe, is that uh, as the, the different fruits and the different foods change over the year, uh, they change in abundance, they change in distribution, and the chimps are, their behavior obviously changes in response. You know, sometimes they're all gathered together in a great big feeding clump where there's just a tremendous amounts of food, and then sometimes it's scattered and very hard to find, and they, they disperse into isolated units and, uh, and so on. Uh, so I said to myself, well, you know, nobody has really got together uh, a, a story of exactly how the changing pattern of food abundance and distribution affects their behavior, so let me study that. So I became just fascinated in the diet. And uh, in the process of, of doing that, I tasted all of the things that chimpanzees ate. Uh, and I learned what I could eat uh, reasonably comfortably. I mean, there are, you know, there are wild raspberries, so some things are totally nice. And there are other things that are, are pretty difficult to eat and certainly difficult to fill your stomach with. But nevertheless, you know, I felt I, I knew enough to be able to maybe survive on the food. And so I went to Jane Goodall and said, look, you know, I think it'd be just fascinating to see if a human could survive on the chimpanzee diet. Uh, do, you, do you mind if I, I do that? And, and I spend, uh, you know, a few days uh, just uh, living out in the wild and, uh, and trying to be like a chimp. You know, I really wanted to get under the skin of a chimp. And she said, yeah, okay, you know, that sounds crazy, or it sounds really stupid, but if you want to do that, you can do that. And, and I said, okay, well, great. And, <laughs> and by the way, I, I want to make it sound authentic. So I want to be naked. I, I, I don't want to, you know, deal with um, uh, clothes. And she said, she said, well, um, okay, but I think, you know, you've got to be decent. So you've got to wear a loincloth. Oh, this is pretty generous of her to, you know, allow this kind of craziness. Uh, I mean, you have to understand, I was, you know, 22 or something. You know. and, um, and I said, oh, well, if you're not going to take it seriously, if you're not going to allow me to take it seriously, I'm not going to do it. So... You know, in, in my memory, I think really what was going on, of course, was I, I wanted an excuse not, not to do it, even though I thought it would be fascinating. Because it would have been incredibly uncomfortable. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I, really, so I, not... I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I didn't do it. Um, but it, it is just to, to say that I was thinking about the fact that um, knowing all the chimp foods and knowing that many of them uh, were sufficiently... Um, palatable to be able to eat them, that I thought I might survive. Cut to 25 years later, and I am thinking about the difference between humans and chimpanzees in terms of, again, you know, this, this very fundamental aspect. And I'm sitting in front of, of my um, fireplace uh, in a home in New England. And I'm looking, staring at the fire, and I'm, and I'm sort of thinking, wait a minute, you know, how long is it that I've got to go back in my ancestry before people did not stare at looking at a fire? Which led me to think about how long is it we've got to go back before we can get to somebody who didn't cook their food? And that basic, very simple question led me extremely quickly to what I think is the right answer. And that is the beginning of the genus Homo, which is two million years, give or take a, a year or two. I think that what happened is that two million years ago, uh, we changed from a basically pretty chimp-like animal to an early kind of, of human. Um, because what you see at that point is uh, in the space of a few hundred thousand years, a very dramatic shift from a relatively small, slightly smaller than chimp-sized uh, animal, with a, uh, a, a head, and uh, that means both a brain and a jaw that is basically pretty chimp-like, 
and shoulders that are chimp-like, arms that are chimp-like. Not chimp-like is the fact that they could walk upright and did a lot, but at the same time, they were still clearly very good at climbing. So it's, it's you know, not unlike a chimp, the way to think about these Australopithecines, which is what we're talking about, um, that uh, gave rise to the genus Homo around two million years ago, uh, is um, uh, you, you roughly think about them as a, a chimpanzee that was standing upright a lot. Um, and by the way, uh, had changed their teeth a little bit so they were good at eating roots. And all of a sudden, in in terms of the paleontological eras, you know, in other words, still half a million years ago, something like that, half a million years it took, you changed from that kind of species, chimp-like thing standing upright, into a, a crude, relatively small-brained, but big, uh, robust version of uh, humans, which we call Homo erectus, the first erect human, meaning standing upright. Uh, and the classic thing to say about them is that if they could have gone into a clothing store on Main Street, they could have picked clothes off the peg, which was not true of a chimpanzee. They could pick our clothes off the peg. They need a little bit of filling out on the shoulders and so on, but um, that there are sh shape and size, roughly. So that was something that uh, changed pretty dramatically, and I think that it was the discovery of the control of fire that was responsible for that. And I'm now amazed that people had not thought about that before, uh, prior to, to my making the argument in a big way. Um, and uh, a lot of people have said how extremely stupid not to have thought of that, you know, to, to quote Thomas Henry Huxley responding to Darwin. Um, and yet, we do not have the absolutely killing evidence about it still. So you know, here's why I think it happened. The, the three uh, big pieces of evidence. Um, first of all, the, the mouth had changed to accommodate a softer type of food. The teeth became smaller. The jaw became smaller. The mouth, the whole mouth became smaller. So instead of eating relatively tough foods, uh, these were, uh, in, once you got to the genus Homo, uh, these were individuals that were eating something that was relatively easy to chew with their small, blunter teeth, smaller mouth, uh, less um, muscular jaws. Secondly, the whole of the gut was much smaller. Nowadays, our gut is about two-thirds of the size it would be if we were a great ape. Maybe it was you know, three-quarters of the size, I don't know. But it was quite a bit smaller to judge from the changes in the bones, the flattening of the ribs, the narrowing of the pelvis. Uh, it was carrying a smaller gut altogether. And the fact that we now have a smaller gut is explicable by the fact that we cook our food, which means that the food is more digestible. Uh, it is easier to, to digest. The gut doesn't have to work so hard. You don't have to hold so much uh, material in the gut. And then the third reason is that this was the time when we stopped having our adaptations to climbing in trees. So uh, no longer were uh, our ancestors really good at climbing in trees like chimpanzees are, or these Australopithecine descendants of a chimpanzee-like ancestor, which had strong, long arms and great mobile shoulders and tremendous upper body strength, which enabled them to swing up into trees and, and climb around in them uh, very easily. The fact that our Homo erectus ancestors had lost those adaptations meant they had to be sleeping on the ground. They could no longer climb up into trees in the way that chimps and gorillas and so on do and, uh, and make their nests every night. Well, if they were sleeping on the ground, how did they defend themselves? I mean, nowadays, you've got to be a complete lunatic to go off into the you know, Serengeti or wherever it is um, and, uh, and just curl up on the ground uh, and, uh, and hope that nobody finds you in the night. It's only, I think, when you've got fire that you can protect yourself. And in fact, we even know that from people nowadays because the, the few times when uh, people living as hunters and gatherers have been recorded 
as being killed by predators is when for some reason their fire goes out and they don't have a fire and uh, the predators can sneak up on them. So I think the, the small uh, mouth, the small gut and the uh, commitment to sleeping on the ground is all evidence of uh, using fire. And the critical thing is for that is the cooking, because once you cook, then uh, many things happen. You get a better quality of food. You get a greater variety of food because there are things that were previously poisonous or bacterially dangerous that you can eat. Uh, you have um, very significantly much less time chewing. You know, as a photographer going out to Gombe, you probably were hoping when you first went there to see chimps sitting around playing with tools all the time and, you know, doing wacky things. But in fact, of course, what do they spend all their time doing? They're up in a tree chewing. They're, and that's exactly why I, as you went to Jane and said you wanted to get naked and go eat that food, I said to her, you know, they're always up there. Can, how do you feel about me going up there? She says, I don't know. I haven't been up there with them. <laughs> they may throw you out. And, and, and in fact, that was my best opportunity to film them in the trees was when they would find a big fig tree that was in fruit. They would all be up there sitting on a branch eating figs uh, and just gorging and gorging and gorging. And Or, um, as you alluded to just a minute ago, if they were frightened, that was their first response, shoot up a tree. Yeah, The big males would sort of take their stand on the ground to check out what was going on. But mothers and infants, and boom, they were up a tree for safety. So, yeah, yeah fire, I could, I mean, yeah, it really makes a, sense that fire well, would change I mean, that the, dynamic. You know, what's so dramatic is the, just the amount of time they spend chewing. And somehow, you know, I'd taken it for granted for you know, being with chimps. But, but then you actually start thinking about it. And, of course, there are very good time and motion studies of uh, all sorts of people around the world in in uh, non-state societies and in state societies, hunters and gatherers, horticulturalists, uh, pastoralists, and so on. And it turns out that humans are, are extremely consistent. I mean, it's around 5% of the day that we actually spend chewing our food. You know, so it's less than an hour a day. But uh, how much is chimps doing it? Well, in Gombe, I found it was on average more than six hours a day in, in uh, the place where I'm now studying chimps in Western Uganda and Kibale, uh, it's more like uh, uh, four to five hours a day. But it's still a lot more than humans. And all of a sudden, you've got all this spare time. And then here's another thing. When you've got fire, then you can keep warm at night. So you don't need to be covered in hair. And that means that during the day, you can take a lot of exercise and shed the heat buildup as your muscles are doing all that work. So you can walk for long distances or you can run. And that is only possible because you can shed the hair that you would otherwise have needed to keep you warm at night. So, you know, there's a lot of consequences once you are able to control fire to the point where you can use it both to cook and to keep yourself warm that mean that you are shifting from a chimpanzee-like animal to a human-like animal. And I think that was the biggest thing that happened two million years ago. In a kind of a weird way, my brain goes to, maybe, maybe that is why we, we all get around a fire, we all stare into it. Maybe there's something really ancestral about that, that mesmerizing effect. It changed us. I love the fact that you can now buy DVDs uh, of uh, just a fire. And, and, you know, there are people who just plug it in <laughs> and they're just watching a fire. I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's hard to resist the idea that our psychology, and we're talking here about emotions much more than uh, you know, reason, um, our, our emotions have been shaped so that we really enjoy just being around a fire because it's safe and it's a source of so much importance to us. And by the way, you know, the, sort of against that in a way um, is uh, the fact that if, if you ever live in a non-state society, an open-air society, 
you will have known that you smell smoke all the time. And that you, know, you spend your life around that fire dancing to try and get away from the smoke. So we are drawn to fire, but we, we still, you know, we, we don't like smoke. It, it is an interesting smell. I mean, I, I have to admit, one of, my, one of my absolute favorite things is flying back into the tropics, and especially if I'm landing in a, in a, you know, in a Cameroon or a Gabon or a Congo or something, and, and I fly in in the evening, and you get off that plane, and it's that warm, humid air with that acrid smell of smoke. Because there's all there's smoke fires going on everywhere, and it's just to me that is a sense of the tropics that you know I feel like I'm there, <laughs> back in the tropics because of that. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you're right that I think it is an atavistic part of humanity, you know, that that we would have lived with smoke uh, for two million years. Now, you know, there are people who who still challenge my dating at two million. I and I'm I'll be amazed if it's if it's wrong, but whatever it is, it's it's a long time that we've been living with with smoke. It, it is a, a really human feature. That takes me to the the next thought because as you were describing, um, you know, people gathering around a fire, I was thinking it's it's also it has this social value. Like it. it if you're sitting around a fire in the evening and, and somebody shows up, whether friend or a stranger, I mean, one of the first things you do is you, you kind of welcome them into the glow of the fire, not mm-hmm. only to see them. And, and people almost always, invariably, no matter what the temperature is, it seems like they always back up to the fire. <laughs> and then there's this socialness, this gathering that goes on around it. And it seems like an interesting bridge when I think about some of the other work you've done around aggression and um, social evolution is that this fire became that hub for a lot of those things to happen. And if you're sitting there, you're trying to communicate. So does language, is language born out of that fire? It, I mean, all those questions sort of pop up in my brain. And right. do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh you know, one thought is what um, an anthropologist called Polly Wiesner uh, found out. Uh, she lived with the Chonkwasi Bushmen of uh, Southern Africa, um, Botswana in the Kalahari Desert. And she recorded conversations all day. And the short story is that it is around the fire that all of the most interesting, subtle, informative conversations happened. That's where people reflected on their relationships with people in other camps. That's where they told the stories about their ancestors. That's where they passed on the, the lore about you know, the wisdom of the ancients, uh, the, the cosmology of the, of the group. Whereas during the day, uh, the conversation would be relatively brief, uh, and uh, more to do with uh, you know, immediate directions. Uh, come over here. Um, where's where's the arrows? You know, whatever. So so there was this great connection between fire and language uh, in those people, and and that seems to make every sense. One, one can imagine that being true of of humans in general. And I do think it's absolutely right that fire would have been so important. Uh, at night, for people to be able to gather around it, that there would have uh, been some kind of uh, evolutionary change towards uh, social tolerance, uh, about uh, easy companionship uh, around the fire. You know, I don't know how big the change would have had to have been, because, uh, as you know, uh, chimpanzees they, they are famously more aggressive than uh, bonobos, and they are in some ways more aggressive than humans. But nevertheless, they can spend hours or days in very relaxed mode. And you know, some of my fondest visions and memories are of being with a group of chimps who's you know, mostly asleep on the ground, uh, many of whom are in physical contact with each other, 
just you know breathing extremely comfortably, um, maybe idly playing with their fingers of uh, of some neighbour, uh, infants wandering around, uh, sort of just rolling on others. Uh, it's just a you know wonderful uh, bucolic scene of uh, calm and enjoyment and pleasure. Uh, so it's easy to think that you can move from that kind of relaxed, sort of sleeping day group into just lying around a fire. But it would have been very important to make sure that those groups were not disturbed by any individual who was sort of constantly trying to irritate others. Uh, I don't know why they should have done, but, you know, maybe some juveniles would want to pick up a flaming ember and wave it in someone else's face or... Um, I don't know. It's hard to, it's easy to be too speculative. But, you know, I take the general point that that the fire would have embedded that kind of social tolerance that you see expressed among chimpanzees on lazy sunlit afternoons when they've got full bellies. Not a huge change, but but a comfortable sort of shift in that in the right direction i heard you talk about um in in i can't remember the the location but i heard you discussing that the energy need also that came out of cooking for brain development and i thought it was fascinating that the, the sheer energy that our brains use um, and, and again, going back to that, you know, like looking at those differences between ourselves and chimpanzees um, with these these big brains that we have um, or energy, uh, maybe not big brains as much as energy consumptive brains. Yes, right. Right. Well, I mean, this is a very interesting story because uh, we know quite a lot about the evolution of brains because we have a sufficient number of skulls in the fossil record uh, that we can calculate the volume of the skull and um, relate it to the size of the body. And uh, we can be pretty confident that the, the volume occupied by the skull is a very good measure of the size of the brain uh, from everything we know about, about primates and humans. So the story is that the brain size remains very chimp-like, just a little bit bigger than chimps, but you know, only 5-10% bigger, that sort of thing, um, throughout the last 6-7 uh, million years until 2 million years ago. And then after around 2 million years ago, the brain starts its, its steady rise, and it carries on rising throughout much of the last 2 million years. That's the, you know, the, the simple story. And so... Why does the brain get bigger? Because, you know, this is obviously a fascinating question from the point of view of thinking about the increasing intellectual uh, abilities of uh, our ancestors. Um, and um, very often people think about this in terms of, well, what are the advantages of having a bigger brain? That's the classic way to think about it. And people think, oh, well, you know, it would really have paid to be able to figure out how to stalk prey animals or how to get the best foods or whatever. But actually, the most, most people, I think, nowadays recognize that uh, the kinds of advantages that would have applied to humans would have applied to any species. Uh, chimpanzees, they could do with a bigger brain. You know, if you think that the brain is there, as most people now do, uh, to help solve social problems, well, Chimpanzees have lots of social problems. So what is the reason that some species can uh, have a bigger brain than others? Answer is, can they fuel it? Can they afford to be able to provide the fuel for the brain? And the reason for saying that is that the brain is not merely a very hungry tissue that requires uh, a high proportion of oxygen compared to its weight compared to most other organs in the body. But also, you never can turn it off. It's not like a computer. Turn turn a computer off, you can turn it on again. 
You turn the brain off, you can't turn it on again. Sorry, you're dead. That's true. Yeah. Never and so, how much energy do our brains use? Uh, it is close on a quarter of our basic metabolic rate. So, if you're not doing too much, about every fourth hamburger you eat is just for fueling your brain. Well, uh, that, that is a challenge, you know, because all animals are energy limited. They, the thing that animals are kind of designed to do is to extract energy from the environment and ultimately you know, convert it into babies. That's the way evolution works. Convert the energy into babies that survive and reproduce for themselves. So how can you afford to put more energy into your brain and less into your babies or your own body? Well, it helps if you can get a, a new supply of energy. And then you can all of a sudden say, well, what am I going to do with this new energy? That's a sort of casual way to think about it. And that's what happened when um, our ancestors learned to cook. They were able to get uh, increasing supplies of energy uh, available to uh, divert it to the brain. Why is that? It's very much because the fact that they were eating more digestible food meant that their guts did not have to work so hard. And the gut is another expensive organ. So the gut was able to get smaller. I mentioned earlier, it's about two-thirds of the size it would be if we were a great ape. All of a sudden, you're saving all that energy that would be used to maintaining the gut. What are you going to do with it? And in the world that uh, our ancestors lived in, for some reason, they were able to move that into the direction of the brain, fuel the brain, and that paid off better than simply having more babies. Maybe because life was so competitive that you really needed to have the smartest possible babies that you could. So the, the, the steady rise in the size of the brain over the last two million years uh, is a rise that is largely independent of any changes in body size. And uh, it seems to be as fast a rise in brain size as you will find anywhere in the animal kingdom. So it may be that it is just as fast as it could be in relationship to uh, the increasing supply of energy coming from uh, our reducing gut size, our increasing quality of food as a result of cooking, and that we owe our abilities for poetry and photography to cooking. How does that change for people now? Um, I, I'll ask the question. I'm not sure if you if you know the answer or not. But how does that change for people now who shift their diets radically from a a cooked cooking diet to one that is not just vegetarian, but you know raw diets, um, you know v very limited diets where it sounds like, you know, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of years here where a brain has to develop, but still, if, if the energy is different, how does that, does it, if, is there a, a shorter term impact on thinking and clarity and um, just I don't think, reproduction? And, and Well, okay, so I don't think there's any studies of... Um, the effects of eating a raw diet on thinking. And I, I wouldn't be sure how the answer would come out because the brain is a very protected organ. Um, in other words, you know, the, I mean, it's as if the body knows that if the brain gets too little food, well, you're in, in very big trouble. You know, there's a risk of death. So uh, the, the last thing that will happen to a starving individual uh, is that the brain will be reduced in uh, energy supply. But there are uh, very big short-term dangers to eating a raw diet in terms of uh, energy shortage. 
And the real place where this is important is with children. So there are people who, for philosophical reasons, wanted to get back to nature, that sort of thing, um, commit themselves to a raw food diet in a really strong sort of philosophical determination uh, to do it. And that becomes dangerous when they, they uh, bring their children in. You know, as adults, it's not dangerous so much as awkward. A raw diet is, um, uh, is very short in energy. It is so short that uh, when uh, women have been monitored on a raw food diet, uh, they have a very clear indication of their shortage of energy in that they stop menstruating. And this is very dramatic data because uh, the, the raw diets that people uh, select are, in fact, incredibly high quality in the raw diet area. You know, so they are um, foods that, uh, first of all, uh, they're very often mashed up uh, in a blender and so on. So that does a lot of the work of digestion for you. Um, uh, secondly, they are foods that come from uh, all around the world, so that at any season of the year, you're always getting fresh foods. Um, they uh, often have uh, oils and, um, and other high-quality foods uh, at a relatively high level. Um, and there's even something, a little bit of cooking, a little bit of heating involved. But despite all these uh, advantages, the average woman... Uh, ceases to menstruate and cannot have a baby. And that's because of the shortage of energy. Well, that's all very well if you're an adult, but what if you're a child? And the answer is that uh, the terrible things have been uh, found with children were uh, being brought up uh, in the you know, best possible uh, motivations of uh, the parents, but they just are misguided in thinking that a raw diet is something that humans could survive on. Uh, then the children can have been recorded dying on a raw food diet, and if not, uh, certainly uh, being stunted. So uh, it is dangerous. I, I personally think there ought to be a law uh, which says that you are not allowed to feed your children on a raw diet, uh, if, if only to help people be alerted to the fact that it is so dangerous. And it, you know, it's an awkward thing, this, because... Many people think that it's, it is getting back to nature. You know, all animals eat their food raw. We are an animal. Why shouldn't we eat our food raw? Well, the answer is we are the only animal that has been evolved to eat our food cooked. And for that reason, we cannot eat our food raw. It's really, really dangerous. So, you know, it, it, it shows what an extraordinary difference we've we've an amazing journey we've come on from being uh, a chimp-like ancestor. Maybe that's that thing I was I was getting at in the beginning in the hiding in the 2% is we've evolved to eat cooked food. Yeah. There is, therein lies one of the biggest differences. And around that, you know, we all of the social context and the language and this brain development. And that takes us down a whole nother line that we'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. But, you know, talking about how we act as social creatures, aggression and passivity and just, I mean, all those kinds of things, they seem to spin out of that, that cooking context, that energy context. Well, a lot of it does. But of course, the thing about cooking is that um, I, all of the members of the genus Homo, you know, the genus Homo evolved about two million years ago. It produced a whole bunch of different species. Uh, people are still, uh, you know, there are so many lines that people are still finding it difficult to trace exactly how they work together. But there was Homo erectus, there was Homo heidelbergensis, there were Neanderthals, there were Denisovans, there were uh, people in Flores Islands. Uh, you will find people who will name uh, a dozen different species. Now, uh, according to me, all of them cooked. Mm. And According to the most conservative people, definitely Neanderthals cooked, and um, and almost certainly, well, actually, definitely Heidelbergensis cooked, um, and uh, and we'll, we'll see about the rest. If you're being you know, being waiting for the 
definitive archaeological evidence to, to tell us. So even though cooking was, was very important for the evolution of our genus with its multiple species of different kinds of human, what it doesn't do is it doesn't help us say why Homo sapiens is different from Neanderthals and Denisovans and all of the other species. And that, I think, is, is a story where indeed we have to talk about aggression and tolerance and self-domestication. And that's why we will have you back on and have another, another podcast. Um, this has been really fascinating. I do have a couple of other questions, if I can dig out all my notes here, um, to, to sort of bring us to a close on this. I, this has been really fascinating. Thank you, Richard. Um, Great questions. It's an amazing conversation, and I, I, first of all, I just find it fascinating that we're the only ones who can sit around and have this conversation. Yes, right. I'm sure there are chimps not sitting around having this conversation, so the fact that we've somehow managed to get to this point um, is, is fascinating all on its own. But I, I wanted to ask you, kind of just in closing a bit, is after 50 years, and uh, you you know, you as we started, you said that you couldn't believe you'd be writing a book about humans and not not chimps, and in the goodness paradox. But where does your brain wander now when you're sitting in front of that fire, staring into the flame, thinking about chimps, thinking about other great apes, thinking about us? What, it, what are the questions that is still unanswered in your brain? Where, where would you like to be looking and wondering? Um, well, I mean, there are sort of details <clears throat> of the stories that I've been working on for, for years. You know, um, I think that uh, uh, among the chimpanzee species, uh, you've got, uh, or subspecies, um, the Western chimpanzees uh, that live in Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, there are fascinating indications that they have been self-domesticated in ways I'd love to, you know, see how the genes work out to be able to see if they really do go in a bonobo-like direction compared to other chimpanzees. So there are, you know, fun population differences among the different apes in Africa to be able to work out. Uh, I would love to to be alive long enough to see the genetic data really worked out to see um, how similar humans are to domesticated animals in our genes. I would love to know why is it that in domesticated species um, and in females compared to males, you find less aggression in in populations and sexes that have smaller brains? I think that's a really fun question that people haven't really thought about much. Um, but, you know, it, it's World Chimpanzee Day, and um, uh, I would love to uh, be able to, to think about conservation just very briefly, because, you know, what, what I just love about the fact that I've been able to study chimps and think about what they mean is that it gives me an excuse to be with them. That pure, aesthetic, intense enjoyment of spending time with this extraordinary creature in the forest. You've had it. You know, we are privileged people to, to have done this. And um, the question in my mind, the big question is, how long will this go on? You know, we, we don't know of recent populations of, um, or recent species of great ape that have gone extinct. I think the last big one, I think, was um, the, the famous Gigantopithecus, the, the largest great ape ever known, which went extinct just about the time that Homo sapiens evolved. Maybe there was a connection, but um, about 300,000 years ago in, in China. But Darwin said uh, that, that it, it seemed impossible that the great apes would be able to survive as the human population increases and needs its food and uh, converts so much of the 
wild habitats uh, into to farming areas. He said all the great apes will go extinct. Well, you know, he was writing in the uh, 1870s for that one. So here we are 150 years later, and uh, they're, they're not thriving exactly, and their populations have gone down. But nevertheless, there are, are reasonably good, big areas where uh, people are dedicated to conserving them. So if I'm thinking about a you know a big question for the future, my question is, are we going to be able to keep them alive? Because, boy, it's worth doing, you know? I mean, um, this has been an incredibly exciting period of discovery over the last uh, 50 years. You know, I, I just happened to have coincided with the time when uh, you know, Jane Goodall, the first person to do a long-term field study uh, of chimpanzees, immediately following George Schaller and Diane Fossey starting the studies of great apes, of, of gorillas. You know, this is what a wonderful time to be alive and be interested in natural history because for the first time uh, in the history of the human species, we actually understand what our neighbors, our neighboring species are like instead of just having myths about them. You know, we really know. And it's at the same time as we're getting uh, an understanding of evolutionary biology that means that we can explain what we see as well as understanding and describing it. So it's enormously exciting. We are so privileged as a species to happen to have chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans, four species of great ape alive with us that give clues to what kind of species we are and where we came from. You know, because I mean, if we were a coelacanth, if we were that, you know, great big deep sea fish off the Madagascar coast, we wouldn't have any close relatives. We wouldn't know. You know, we couldn't speculate about how it had all worked and our cosmology would be so unscientific and, and, uh, and confused. But as it is, we are getting a picture of, you know, really these big questions of where did we come from? And it's because the great apes are alive still. If they died, like so many primates did a thousand years ago in Madagascar when people arrived there, then we'd be so impoverished. So, you know, for me, the big question is, uh, can we find ways to balance the needs of growing human populations with the opportunity to keep significant populations of the great apes alive in their different subspecies that may be different from each other? Because that is a really important legacy to bequeath to future generations. You, you, you mentioned privilege a couple of times. Um, it, ha it has, uh, like you, it has been a privilege to see these animals in the wild. And we do, I do feel that commitment. I have said more than once that it would be one of the most tragic things that I would ever do is to walk into a fourth or fifth grade classroom and try to explain to children what a great ape was, not what it is. Um, Richard, this has been a privilege. Thank you so very much for taking the time um, to be with us on Talking Apes. Um, I, I really encourage people who are listening to this, if you haven't picked up any of the books, start with Catching Fire. It's it's an amazing read. It It is all the things we've been talking about, but it, it really does sort of flip your flip that that energy-consuming brain of yours around and, and makes you think about the world and our species in a different way. Um, again, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. A real pleasure. I'm enormously grateful to Richard for joining us on World Chimpanzee Day and exploring the past few million years of us becoming us. I'm also thankful for his final thoughts on the importance of ensuring chimpanzees and all great apes remain with us on this journey into the future. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.lobio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work in pulling together another great episode of Talking Apes. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. Please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.